Today on the Matt Walsh Show, as we have our focus trained on events overseas, terrorists are streaming across the border in this country. What's more, the Biden administration is facilitating this invasion. I'll explain. Also, Biden is in Israel bumbling around and mumbling to himself. This is the man who's supposed to help us avoid World War III, which means, of course, we're screwed. And Britney Spears has a new memoir where she reveals that she got an abortion at Justin Timberlake's request years ago. In her daily cancellation, a young woman young woman complains that uh, her business marketing degree has not resulted in an immediate six-figure salary right out of college. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Most of the attention at the moment is focused on events overseas, and this is understandable to some extent, as the current conflict in the Middle East is obviously very important and has far-reaching implications. The problem is that, first of all, our own leaders do not appear to be focusing on the right things as it relates to that conflict. Namely, they should be focusing on doing everything they possibly can to avoid World War III. Like That should be the top priority, but they seem entirely uninterested in avoiding a global conflict. If anything, they're motivated in the opposite direction. Uh, Many of them seem to want a world war, and if they want it, then they'll get it. Second, as our gaze is directed at events thousands of miles away, our own country finds itself in an increasingly dire situation. We may soon have a uh, sort of Middle East-style chaos in this country, thanks to our own undefended, unprotected borders. In fact, I probably shouldn't use the word may. There's no may about it. It will happen. We are inviting it. And uh, I'll show you what I mean. But first, let's go back to one of the biggest lessons from 9-11, which is that hindsight bias can get people killed. So here's how a lot of people thought prior to 9-11. They figured, well, no terrorist has ever hijacked or, or has hijacked a U.S. commercial aircraft anywhere in the world for well over a decade. You know, at that point, it's been a decade. And uh, they certainly have never flown them into buildings. And therefore, it's crazy to worry about any terror group hijacking planes and flying them into buildings. They haven't done it before. Pretty much everyone in aviation thought like that. In fact, um, just uh, months before 9-11, the leader of a major pilot safety association publicly opposed the idea of reinforced cockpit doors. And he said, quote, even if you make a vault out of the door, if they have a noose around my flight attendant's neck, I'm not, I, I am going to open the door. So there's no point in having the reinforced doors was his point. The 9-11 commission put that quote in their report because the pilot's attitude reflected FAA guidance at the time, which stated that airplane crews should basically just do whatever hijackers want because there's no way that they're going to grab the controls and turn the plane into a missile, for example. Well, the moment the terrorists hijacked four commercial airliners and flew three of them into buildings and one of them into the ground, everybody on the planet immediately understood how wrong the old way of thinking was. You don't discount the risk of a particular type of terrorist attack by saying it hasn't happened yet. Instead, you look for vulnerabilities in the existing system uh, that we we have, because obviously, you know, the bad guys are doing the same thing. And that was supposedly all learned and settled after 9-11. But apparently, um, this lesson has not been learned, or at least it's been forgotten or just ignored, at least in Washington. Last month, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing to investigate how an operative with ties to ISIS had managed to smuggle more than a dozen migrants migrants from Uzbekistan into the United States through the southern border. 
Now, the FBI still has no idea exactly how many Uzbekistanis this ISIS smuggler allowed into this country, nor do they have any way to track them all down. They're lost in the wind, which isn't surprising given that this past fiscal year, there were more illegal crossings at the border than at any other time in the history of this country. Um, Well, how are Democrats' preferred, quote-unquote, immigration experts responding to this development? For uh, a lesson on that, here's a clip from last month's House Judiciary Committee hearing in which a vice president at the libertarian Cato Institute explains that Republicans are fear-mongering about the border. Why? Well, because uh, illegal migrants haven't conducted any terrorist attacks yet. Watch. The title of this hearing is Terrorist Entry Through the Southwest Border. When I first heard that was the title, my reaction was, what terrorist entry through the Southwest border? Zero people have been murdered in attacks committed by terrorists who entered as illegal immigrants. Zero people have been injured in attacks committed by terrorists who entered illegally. Zero attacks have been carried out by immigrants who entered illegally. So that's the logic. It's kind of a nine, a pre-9-11 logic, and Democrats are nodding along. Terrorists haven't used the wide-open southern border to conduct a large-scale terrorist attack so far, and therefore you're paranoid for thinking that it's a possibility. That's the idea, and pretty much every Democrat in Congress endorses this view, which is, you know, it's kind of like saying that you should just leave the door of your house wide open at night while you go to sleep because, well, you've never been the victim of a home invasion robbery before. It hasn't happened yet, and therefore it will never happen, and therefore there's no reason to do anything to prevent it from happening. This is how they're, they're responding to the news that ISIS is bringing in migrants from Uzbekistan that are completely unvetted. We don't know anything about them. That's despite the fact that Uzbekistan has a long history of exporting terrorists to this country. On Halloween night in 2017, for example, a 29-year-old Uzbek migrant who was here on a visa drove a truck into pedestrians and, uh, and cyclists in Manhattan, killing eight of them and wounding many more. That attack followed the sentencing of another Uzbek migrant, also here on a visa, who was found guilty of terrorism charges for planning to bomb Coney Island. Now, Democrats and libertarians, apparently, want you to ignore all of that because those Uzbekistani terrorists didn't arrive through the southern border. They came on a plane. Therefore, they're saying you have no reason to worry about border security because they're just, they would come on a plane. Um, it's a totally nonsensical approach, obviously, but that's, that's what they're going with. Republicans, for the most part, you know, they're not focused on it one way or another. They want you to focus on Ukraine and the Middle East. Mitch McConnell, who somehow is still in office, says Ukraine is our top priority right now. As a result of this um, bipartisan consensus in Washington, this decision to focus on every other border except our own, there's now a very real risk that Americans will die. In fact, Americans are already dying, if not from terrorism, then from gang violence and other kind of violence that comes across the border. As CNN reported, the episode involving the ISIS smuggler was so alarming that an urgent classified intelligence report was circulated to President Joe Biden's top cabinet officials in their morning briefing book. For some counterterrorism officials, it shows that the U.S. is deeply vulnerable to the possibility that terrorists could sneak across the southern border by hiding amid the surge of migrants entering the country in search of asylum. Now, to be clear, the Biden administration, uh, they aren't simply ignoring the problem. That'd be bad enough. They are actually facilitating it. After 9-11, the U.S. government started using a category called special interest aliens, which is kind of a funny euphemism, but 
the idea is to flag migrants coming from countries that promote terrorism, such as Uzbekistan. These are the special interest um, aliens. The idea was, was, was to be transparent with Americans about who exactly is coming into this country and from where. But the Biden administration has decided to hide all of that data because they don't want us to know. At the same hearing we just showed you, Todd Benzman of the Center for Immigration Studies also testified. He told lawmakers that, quote, uh, the Biden administration has taken steps to obscure the number of special interest aliens from the U.S. public, ending routine reporting of these apprehensions by nationality. And indeed, on the Border Patrol website, they don't list the number of special interest migrants coming from the vast majority of Muslim countries. They don't want you to know how many people ISIS could be bringing to this country from places like Uzbekistan and other places. But many of those numbers uh, have leaked out anyway, in spite of the Biden administration's best efforts. And Tom Benzman told the House Judiciary Committee uh, what those numbers show. It turns out that our southern border is so overwhelmed with migrants that we're not able to effectively screen special interest aliens at all. Watch. Expect those screening programs to be degraded indefinitely because vast numbers of special interest aliens are currently pouring through the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama. Usually 10,000 migrants or less pass through the gap. In 2023, however, 300,000 plus have gone through the gap. And whereas only 3,000 or 4,000 special interest aliens among them reached our southern border annually, the Daily Caller just reported that 75,000 came in just the last nine months. DHS cannot possibly vet or even interview a fraction of these numbers, raising the terrorism risk. And whereas about 20 aliens on the terror watch list were caught at the southwest border in prior years, since this crisis began in 2021 through the end of July, Border Patrol apprehended an almost implausibly large number of them, 258 as of now. Those watch-listed 258 are just the ones Border Patrol managed to catch. Border Patrol failed to apprehend a record-breaking 1.8 million migrants who slipped into the interior. Now, those numbers don't seem even possible. Between October 2022 and August 2023, that's uh, less than a year's time, more than 75,000 special interest aliens were encountered, encountered by Border Patrol. Before the current border crisis, that number of uh, special interest aliens encountered by Border Patrol officials was closer to 3,000. And these are just the, the migrants that were encountered. The actual number of special interest aliens arriving at our borders is far larger, though it's impossible to know how many. And again, these are just the people coming from countries that the U.S. government believes are a high-risk uh, terrorist states. We're also importing the rest of the third world, too, without any vetting whatsoever. Along with depolicing, that's leading to a drastic increase in violent crime rates in this country, all over the country. We're not taking in families or stable households. We're taking in mostly young men with no ties to this country, no loyalty to this country, and very little to lose. And in response, a lot more migrants are coming our way. This was the scene uh, in Mexico recently, as yet another large group of migrants, apparently from Haiti, broke through barriers at a refugee office. Look at this. So you see that there, 
Uh, and you can see the crowd for yourself. When Democrats talk about illegal immigrants, they want you to imagine mothers with young children fleeing poverty and oppression. You know, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, they tell us, because they think that a poem engraved on a large statue carries the weight of law and, uh, and, and should actually determine our immigration policy. But that does not really describe a great number of the migrants pouring across the border. There are some mothers with young children, okay? But what you just saw in the video, uh, there was a bunch of young military-aged males. And one of the things about those people is that these are the sorts of people who could be of use in their own countries. They could be trying to improve their own homes, fighting to make their own countries prosperous or at least livable. I mean, imagine if these countries actually retained all of their young, able-bodied, strong males to help uh, actually, literally, and in every other sense, build the country. But instead, they all come here to take advantage of the welfare state. And they come here not always with the best intentions. This is what happens when politicians promise free health care to illegal aliens, as every Democratic Party presidential candidate did in the last election. It's what happens when the President of the United States announces his commitment to making America less white and decides to defame any Border Patrol officer who tries to enforce the law. It's what happens when we are more concerned with other countries' borders than our own. This is why people from Haiti and so many other countries are heading for the U.S. border, which is not even remotely secure. ISIS sees this happening. Every terrorist organization on the planet sees it happening. They saw the atrocities that Hamas was able to commit against Israel, which has one of the most closely surveilled and guarded borders on the entire planet. There's no doubt that they're looking at that, and then they're looking at our open border, and they're seeing an opportunity to commit similar acts of barbarism in this country. It's not fear-mongering. It's just the reality. Courtesy of ISIS, there's reason to believe that many of these terrorists are already here. And we can respond to that reality either by uh, uh, closing and militarizing the border and beginning mass deportations, or we can do nothing and just get ready for the inevitable. There will be an attack. The left will pretend again to relearn the lessons of 9-11 all over again. And American citizens, who are the only citizens our leaders are supposed to protect and defend, will die as a result. This is very, very concerning. And, and I'm, you know, I've been concerned right. about the myocarditis, but this really kind of took my breath away. And, and why it is not being discussed more widely is mysterious and almost makes me believe it must be over the target. It must be because it is, well, it is uh, problematic. Yes, and, and that's what I've been reporting on. And that's why I specifically, of all the things we want, I wanted to talk with Dr. McCullough about today, was I want to put to bed this this issue, this myth that, you know, yes, we're seeing myocarditis, but a bunch of it's from COVID. That simply isn't the case. This is a significant yeah. risk from these vaccines. The the uh, big the pharmaceutical companies know it. The FDA knows it. The CDC knows it. Uh, it is out there. This is not a virus-related thing. It is from the vaccine, and I do think it's very problematic. And I, you know, there are nuances of what Dr. McCullough said that I don't want people uh, to have missed, like the yeah. fact that there's a yeah. lot of myocarditis. The ones we know, Drew, are the ones that are symptomatic. 
when somebody has chest pain or shortness of breath or all of a sudden develops yep. exercise intolerance, then they get worked up. But it's the leagues of people who have myocarditis and don't know it because they don't have symptoms. Mm -hmm. And for many of those people, mm -hmm. the first sign that they have myocarditis is going to be sudden cardiac arrest. The first yeah, sign that, that they have myocarditis sure. is going to be being found dead in bed by their parents in the morning. Okay. This is, yes. that's the concern. So the question is how many, you know, every, as far as I'm concerned, if you are a university that has mandated this vaccine, so you're mandating a vaccination for people who are in that prime risk category, they should be providing absolutely free screening for every single student that they have, the tens of thousands of them walking around their campus that they forced to get vaccinated, they should be forced to pay for the cardiac MRI for those guys, for every one of those students, for every employee who was forced against his or her will to take one, the employer should be obligated to pay for a full cardiac workup, including the very costly cardiac MRI to look for signs of myocarditis. I, I agree with everything you said, and not only that, but it, it isn't just the sudden death that now this circulation article implies. The circulation article implies that there will be lifelong progression of myocardial yeah. dysfunction, difficulty with activities, yeah. eventually cardiobiopathies, needing cardiac transplantation mm -hmm. if you're a young adult when developing these things. Well, we're going to get into it today with Dr. Peter McCullough. He is a cardiologist, chief scientific officer for the wellness company, expert on cardiovascular medicine with over 30 years of experience. He has spoken widely uh, on a number of topics, but he's very concerned about the mRNA vaccines. He co-authored The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. That was just now removed from Amazon, which seems somewhat scandalous. PeterMcCulloughMD.com is where you can find out more. McCullough spelled M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H, PeterMcCullough.com. Twitter is P underscore McCulloughMD, P underscore McCulloughMD. Uh, and, uh, of course, Dr. Kelly Victory is here with us. I'm going to bring her in as early as possible because Dr. Vic Dr. McCullough has a heart out. So let's get to it. Let me uh, go right to it and get Dr. Peter McCullough in here. As I said, uh, P underscore McCullough MD and uh, PeterMcCullough.com for more information. But uh, Dr. McCullough, welcome to the program. Thank you. So uh, I, I like to stay abreast of the literature as it emerges. And uh, the New England Journal puts out an electronic version of the publication every week, or every two weeks. And uh, I, I thought you might like this because it just came out, just literally during during the intro to the show. Uh, this is uh, one of the lead articles, and uh, it's framed this way. It's The article is named, Do Pandemics Ever End? And it says, as an opening paragraph, since pandemics are sociopolitical as well as epidemiological events, their end is determined not only by epidemiologic criteria, but by social, political, and ethical concerns. When did that happen to pandemic? When, when did an infectious disease outbreak become a socio-political anything? Obviously, impact socio-political functioning, but determining a pandemic—that mind-blowing. It's true, 
you know, we're coming up on four years of the, the pandemic years, if you will. It, it's spanning quite a distance in time. You know, the Spanish flu was about two years and it finished. So many have conjectured what has made this one last so long. And and I agree with you. I, you know, some of it's just uh, contextual of, of what people um, think is going on and how it's presented to them in the media. We are in the midst of a very minor outbreak now, and it's led is we have the most diverse uh, subvariant strains so far we've ever had in an outbreak. They typically have been mm. single strain or single subvariant strain outbreaks. It's it's very very diverse. Uh, the leaders are uh, EG5 and FL1.5, but now HB1 is coming up in third position. XBB1.5, that was the original target of the most recent boosters. Uh, that one now is at 0%, according to the CDC nowcast as of September 22nd, 2023. And uh, let me interrupt so you, Peter. I want to hang a lantern yeah. on that. The, the, I want to make sure people hear what you said because it could, could go past them. The booster is directed at XBB, and XBB is at zero percent. So the question but, is, but does me, it have any collateral effect? And I saw some data on EG5, and it was like, oh yeah, it seems to have some effect on that. Well, that's now almost gone too. So what what are we doing here with this booster? Well, well, yeah, there were ten animals tested with the new, uh, you know, the new form of the vaccine. And it did raise antibodies equally against um, XBB 1.5, which is now gone, and EG5, which is, I think, roughly about 20% of, of strains. But these antibody studies have not been valid surrogates of, of really providing immunity, that is, preventing anything in a human being so far. Uh, but uh, the point I was going to make is that uh, we still are at record pandemic lows in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. And despite cases being up a little bit, even unadjudicated hospitalizations and deaths at a record low. I personally haven't had a patient in the hospital, and, and I hear about cases and I treat them in my practice. I haven't had a patient in the hospital in over two years. Well, I know um, both you and Kelly are skeptical of Paxlovid, but, my, but I've been using a lot of it to, to great effect in elderly patients, primarily where it's been approved. But my, my question is, why do none of the commentaries about the necessity of vaccine, particularly in middle-aged and young people, take into account the fact that we have treatments? We have molnupiravir, we have Paxlovid. For, forget the early treatment controversy. We have two really effective pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, whether you want to use them or not is a whole separate issue. Why does that never come into the conversation about these requirements for vaccine in population where the risk-reward is reversed? where there's not much benefit to be derived and increasingly risk is being sort of, um, it's becoming more clear that there's a lot of risk there. So why are they pushing so hard? I can't get it. And then leaving treatment out of the equation entirely. I think the strategy from the very beginning was a vaccine only strategy. You can think vaccinated get sick too, so they would need treatment. I've used plenty of Paxlovid as well as Molnupiravir. I, I incorporated them into the McCullough protocol uh, you know, as soon as they came out, I've actually used all the drugs. I'm very diverse. I'm not biased towards one drug or the other. I do have to say, I am very impressed with the performance of the viricidal nasal sprays and gargles. I, I think they really beat everything in the protocol. Dilute uh, iodine or xylitol based colloidal silver, and then yep. scope and Listerine with yep. some iodine or xylitol. This is amazing how good they are. 17 trials, three large randomized trials. 
they drop PCR positivity very quickly. Uh, you know, they were the way to reduce spread of the illness. And, uh, and when yes. carried out, they reduced rates of hospitalization, need for oxygen. So it's, I, I think they're yes. very impressive. You never hear any public health messaging about nasal and oral hygiene. No, no that's right. Uh, we were an early promoter of the uh, betadine solution. It was actually worked out and studied by an ophthalmologist who lived in the Caribbean or something. And I spoke to the guy and he, we went over the data. It was, he was like, this is astonishing stuff. Why is no one getting behind it? And still nothing, nothing. It's true. You know, the theory is, is that the virus is in this, uh, this exponential replication phase and, and the sprays don't kill all the virion particles, but they kill enough so mucosal immunity can uh, protect against invasive disease. And it works for the common cold, works for influenza, should work for any next respiratory pandemic. Uh, you know, I didn't know about this before the pandemic. So a cold for me personally used to be three days of a sore throat, then, then three or four days of nasal congestion, and then a week to finish it up, about a two-week experience. And I have had colds now where I carry uh, an iodine-based spray and, and, and gargles, and I can tell you right now, I've reduced a common cold to about a day. Susan, you had to look into that. You, you, she's had multiple viral syndromes in the recent months. I have. You've been traveling a lot. I, strangely, have not had anything. She's worried that uh, that she and one of our sons are the, are the most vaccinated in our family, and they've had COVID the most and viral illnesses the most. Uh, and, and it used to be reversed when we were, you know, throughout our marriage. It goes away pretty quick, But though. I was the one with the weak immune system, and you were the one with the powerful one, and uh, now it's reversed. That's, That's why I'm coughing in the background. So, but uh, I want to get Dr. Victor in here as quickly as possible. But I, I'm curious, Dr. McCullough, we haven't really, I don't remember we really chronicled this in the previous conversations we've had, but I'd like to know how your life has changed with all this. Hey, what were you doing before and what are you doing now? How, how, how can people understand what has happened to you? I, don't, I think they see you now and I don't think they understand the road you've traveled. And I'd like you to just sort of tell them that, that tale, if you would. I'm formerly a uh, you know, full professor of medicine. I'd uh, ascended the academic ranks. I'm former chief of cardiology at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. I was the chief academic scientific officer for the St. John Providence Health System, the biggest health ministry for Ascension Health. Uh, you know, I was I had moved to Texas to take care of my family, and and was in that sandwich year as a you know as a father looking after parents and children, and um, I had a very nice position at a major medical center uh, here in Dallas. And uh, you know, at my very, I, you know, when COVID hit, I got a big research grant to study uh, how we could try to prevent it. I had an investigation into a drug application. The White House contacted me and you know asked me for help, and then the U.S. Senate. So I got involved. But prior to COVID, uh, I was well known in my field. I was the most published person in the field of heart and kidney interactions. I published the textbook chapter in Braunwald's textbook of cardiology. I had my own textbook, Cardiorenal Medicine. I was the inaugural editor editor of cardiorenal medicine and um, of reviews in cardiovascular medicine for decades. I had lectured all over the country. I'd lectured at the FDA, the EMA. I've been on data safety monitoring boards, New York Academy of Sciences. Uh, so I was well known in my field. I think in 2007, I was on C-SPAN for hours of, uh, for a congressional oversight hearing. Uh, but COVID brought me to a, being a role as a public figure and what I couldn't understand is why other doctors didn't jump on board and try to help in treating patients. And treatment still was undersubscribed all the way through. I know you were out there, I was out there, Kelly was out there, uh, but we were too few. And what we know in a paper by Verdkirk and colleagues, 
is that the only people who ended up hospitalized or worse dying, and almost all the deaths occurred in the hospital, is because they were undertreated in the ambulatory phase of the, of the illness. Sure, of course, of course. That, that was the part that was shocking to me, that we, we, we really abandoned our post. I couldn't believe it. And I come to understand how many doctors are employees and the employer was giving them mandates and from on high and they were frozen. They were scared to death to do anything. Uh, speaking of the cardiorenal stuff, did you see, this is just a complete sidebar before we get victory in, that uh, there was a study today on renal effect of uh, Ozempic, of all things, and that the uh, renal metabolic syndrome, this is a new category of metabolic syndrome, is was dramatically reduced by uh, mm -hmm. this medication. Did you see that today? It was just, just today. It's true. They... The GLP uh, GLP one active drugs as well as the SGLT two inhibitors have been revolutionary. They improve both heart and kidney outcomes. Uh, you know, cause weight loss by different mechanisms. So we're using these drugs very successfully in practice. That was the whole reason why that I was really pushing that cardiorenal field. The hypothesis was if we did something that helps the kidneys, it would help the heart and vice versa, and it's really paid off. Mm. And, you know, again, hypertension and the whole metabolic process mm -hmm. of obesity, this is all tied together. And they were finally looking at it that way, which is important, I'd say. Right. Uh, not, not, I'm not recommending Ozambic. Anybody who accuses me of that, I'm saying it, if your doctor recommends it, there's some significant benefits to be derived. All right, let's us, let's us get Dr. Victory uh, in here. Do you want to quickly, though, uh, review your catastrophe with Amazon? And then we'll have that as a setup to bring Dr. Victory in. We were shocked on September 29th when the first author of my book, John Leake, who, who is a best-selling full-time professional author, uh, found out that our book had been taken down from Amazon. The audiobook and the soft cover are self-published. So John and I self-published it through an Amazon publishing agreement. So there's a contract. Amazon uh, you know, certainly reviewed all the materials, all the chapters. It's very carefully curated, curated met all the criteria. And it had 18 months of five-star sales, courage to face COVID-19, preventing hospitalizations and deaths while battling the biopharmaceutical con uh, um, complex. It's being looked at very carefully for a major motion picture. It's extremely well-written and un understandable because it's written by a professional author. Amazon struck it down on September 19th, claiming, I think really fraudulently, that it had offensive content. And now in a series of email exchanges, they will not tell us what they think is offensive. And because it's self-published, we can actually make a make a change. It's very easy to do that. And they won't tell us what's offensive about it. They won't let it back up on Amazon. And this is unprecedented. You know, books are at a different standard than a Twitter account or a Facebook account. You know, books are work of literary art. And ours has been, out of all the COVID genre books, has been struck down uh, after 18 months of, of great success. In fact, the month before, Amazon had lowered the price but kept our royalties the same. They do that for very successful books that are selling well. Mm. So something's mm. happened and, and nobody can explain it. Well, I, I've been saying from the beginning that the burning of the books were underway and it's happened in many, many different ways. And we should be, we should be extremely disturbed by this, much the way disturbed by the silencing and firing of professors. These were things that, that we pointed at in the 50s in the McCarthy area as the extraordinary excesses that should never, ever happen again. And here we are again, coming from a different direction. Well, all right. So Dr. Peter McCullough is with us. Uh, as I said, you can get, can you still, you can get the audio book, but can you get the book anymore? 
You can get the book on Barnes & Noble as well as on the book website, CourageToFaceCovid.com. Okay. Uh, and it's uh, PeterMcCulloughMD.com for more information and also the Twitter handles P, un P underscore MD. What's up? Uh, also, uh, you've been a big advocate for nat natokinase. I think we have an outtake from you from the uh, wellness company um, advocating the utility of that substance. Yeah, and, yeah uh, I have. I, you know, I've been uh, embroiled in this uh, medical quagmire of what to do with the, the burgeoning number of patients with long COVID syndrome and those yeah. who feel unwell after the vaccines. And every study seems to lead to the spike protein, that spine on the surface of the virus being the problem. The spike protein is not amenable to human enzymes breaking it down. After the infection alone, Bruce Patterson has shown the S1 segment stuck in CD16 positive monocytes for up to 15 months yep. after a severe infection. Yep. After the vaccines, yep. uh, uh, the S1 and the S2 segment are held in the pre-fusion confirmation and they've been found circulating in the bloodstream free as well as in tissues that are you know inflamed and developing organ dysfunction so the spike protein seems Crazy. to be the culprit yeah, the japanese the, again, the, uh, use, the, go ahead yeah japanese the japanese use natto which is a the breakdown product of soy fermentation by a bacteria bacillus subtilis natto now they've been using it for its cardiovascular effects for about uh, you know at least several decades. They've been eating it for a thousand years. It's a natural thrombolytic, proteolytic enzyme. And uh, indeed, natokinase in, in paper by Obu, another one by Tanakawa, clearly break down the spike protein, even in, in cell lysate and intact cell models. We don't have clinical data indicating what the outcomes are, but it's so attractive. We started working with it in our practice now for over a year, and we are seeing clinical benefit without Having funding, funding's going all around us to other problems, but without funding, uh, we're doing the best we can in our clinical practice. Now, uh, we've, in the last few months, added bromelain. Bromelain is a family of enzymes derived from the stems of pineapple, also shown in preclinical studies to break down the spike protein. Bromelain's an FDA-approved drug as an ointment uh, used in deep uh, tissue burns and wounds in 2022. So we know it has a medicinal effect. It is available orally as a capsule. And then lastly, we add curcumin, and curcumin needs to be aided in absorption, preferably with piperine, a derivative of, of black pepper. And curcumin actually has randomized trials in long COVID. So it actually is in human studies, reduces inflammatory factors. People in general feel better. So we have put together this triple combination in clinical practice, and I've published this now in the journal of American physicians and surgeons is on the European Commission preprint server. It's called base spike detoxification, base spike detoxification, meaning it's a base of treatment of which we can add other things, uh, but we need to, uh, we have found in our practice, we have to commit to this for about three to 12 months for people with multiple episodes of COVID, multiple COVID vaccines in order to mm -hmm. make headway in their syndrome. Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Kelly Victor will join us right after this. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme 
on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And Dr. Victory, I will cut you loose with Dr. McCullough. Just one second. My team here is very anxious to uh, tell people that if they are interested in the bromelain and the natokinase, it's available at drdrew.com slash TWC. Whoop, Susan. I think that they have the kids spike support that has the bromelain in it. I'm mm. ordering it because I like gummies. <laughs> okay. Well, right. Listen, Dr. Drew, if I could just clarify, the kids spike yeah. support has both papain and bromelain, but in the pediatric appropriate doses. The uh, mm. adult spike support has natokinase uh, plus uh, about a half a dozen minor in ingredients that we think is helpful. And the wellness company will be bringing on curcumin and uh, bromelain uh, in an adult trio. So you can go to wellness company and meet your needs. Far and away, the most important uh, element on the adult program is the spike support, TWC spike support, two capsules twice a day. And as you all know, sure. we are sponsored by the wellness company, but... You do two capsules twice a day? Susan's been taking the net of kindness. Yeah, I've been taking it. Yeah. Only one. I'll take two. Okay. I keep getting COVID. Make sure, uh, Susan, make sure between meals. Between meals. Mm, empty stomach. Because oh, it, really? Okay. It's an enzyme. It, it'll get uh, preoccupied with the food stream. Oh, that's good to know. Peter. Dr. Victory. Dr. 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 McCullough, so happy to, to see you. Great to have you here. When I posted about you appearing on the show with us today, I used the uh, the words brilliant and indefatigable about you. And I mean, though, most sincerely, truly, um, I am so appreciative of your courage and leadership during this debacle. Um, I, who would have thought we'd be still talking about this four years later? Uh, but uh, happy that you're here. You and Drew covered a lot of territory before I came on. So I want to I go back to, to a couple of things and, and dig in a little deeper. One thing that you pointed out that I think has been underreported uh, and those people who don't know of pandemics, I am a student of pandemics, um, but people who don't know that, you pointed out most pandemics uh, are one single pathogen, one, not, not multiple variant after variant after variant after variant, the way that we are dealing with COVID, all of these strains that keep, talk about that and talk about why, what your theories are about why in the COVID pandemic, we are seeing such a huge and ongoing series of mutations and continuation of, of the disease process. You know, in 2020, I was the co-principal investigator for a national program for a vaccine. I was a vaccine co-principal investigator for the whole country. And it was a vaccine called the Imodulon vaccine. It was a cellular-based vaccine. And in our proposal, we said we would vaccinate only nursing home patients and nursing home workers, that we wouldn't over-vaccinate the country because we were afraid of actually breeding resistant strains or causing you know, ecological pressures. Two papers uh, appeared, one by Neeson, the other one by Venkata Krishnan, uh, both showing if we got to more than 25% of the population vaccinated in a highly prevalent pandemic, we would put evolutionary pressures on the virus to have it basically to select for strains that are going to be resistant to the vaccine or at least be able to you know, live in, in a vaccinated person easily. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, we did see outbreak after outbreak of, of single strains, right? So we had uh, the wild type, then alpha. We didn't really have a, a beta uh, here, but uh, it was in South Africa. Gamma was the worst. That was in the center part of Brazil, but we did have delta. Uh, we did have alpha. We did have delta. And then when Omicron came, this was interesting, December of 2021, 
it literally shut off Delta overnight. It closed the immunologic door. And there are two Japanese peer-reviewed papers suggesting that Omicron is so heavily mutated that it may have come out of a lab. And that's the conclusion. It may have come out of a bio lab, and that's the conclusion of you know independent Japanese investigators. Yeah, I think I think it's very clear in my estimation that the uh, that the vaccines were a significant contributor uh, to this ongoing mutations. Mm -hmm. There's a reason we have never launched a mass vaccination program in the middle of a pandemic. Um, that's sort of a, a, a fundamental construct of of pandemic management. So I wanted to make sure that we got that out there. Um, you posted something interesting uh, and something that I have said many times in the past, where I forced, you know, against my will, which is the only way it would be, that I would take one of these vaccines, I would have also gone for the Novavax, thinking it's the, uh, of all of the options out there, it's perhaps the the least bad, if that, uh, I, if I could say that'd be the least problematic. Talk a little bit about your thoughts about that vaccine versus uh, the mRNA vaccines. The mRNA vaccines, uh, you know, they code for the spike protein. And they originally coded for the original Wuhan strain, then BA4, BA5, uh, Omicron subvariant, now XBB 1.5. But they, there's no control over turning off the genetic code for the spike protein. There's no control over how much spike protein the body would get. Novavax is the only antigen-based vaccine has five micrograms of the spike protein, so it's fixed. It's, it's, it's like a tetanus shot, five micrograms. And I do think overall, looking at the data, that it's safer than the other vaccines, but it, unfortunately, it's terribly ineffective. I think I have that on my Substack today. Uh, just like the other vaccines, uh, the duration of coverage is very, very short. And, uh, uh, you know, in, in most of the analysis, it doesn't even get 50% protection against any outcome. Yeah, and that's what I, I'm not. When it was around. Just curious. What's that? You guys? Uh, the Johnson & Johnson, whether that's the one I took because I, I like the idea of a, of a traditional platform that had been well studied. Uh, of course, it had its problems. I was a, I was a victim of some of it. But but I, I always had the sense that was not such a relative risk of that vaccine. There's my side effect. I had a sudden raccoon's eye, which is the presenting feature of a transverse sinus thrombosis, which is the dreaded complication of the J&J &J, and took it off the market because I think there were five cases or 10 cases or something. But in retrospect, maybe, maybe not as deleterious and maybe efficacious as well. J&J &J and, and, of course, the uh, outside of the United States, the AstraZeneca vaccine were adenoviral vector vaccines, uh, similar to the Sputnik vac or the uh, Russian vaccine. I think it's called Sputnik. And, um, yes. uh, uh, you know, what they do is they, uh, you know, have a replication incompetent adenovirus. And then it, you know, as it enters the cell, it actually gives the code to produce the, uh, the spike protein. But, again, we found in J&J &J, it was too much spike protein. It was not... Uh, it was not reproducible, uh, too much thrombosis, even the vector uh, tripped off mm. some thrombosis. And so AstraZeneca removed globally, uh, removed in the United States. AstraZeneca turned out to be about 6% of the U.S. Uh, population who took a vaccine took uh, Johnson Johnson, and the rest took messenger RNA. Less than 1% took Novavax. Yeah, my concern, I, I, I was saying about the Novavax is that I don't care if it's ineffective, if I was forced to take it only because I've been criticized in the past for saying that people who take the mRNA vaccines fundamentally become spike 
protein, you know, factories. That's what they are. Mm -hmm. There is no off switch. Uh, and I think it is extraordinarily problematic. Uh, so anyway, I was interested in your post about that. The, the but, big but thing I want to get into, go ahead. Yeah, but Kelly, I just wanted to point out, have you ever wondered why the CDC never really featured or HHS never really featured J&J or Novavax in their commercials or their promotional materials? Isn't that interesting? Oh, oh there's, yes, very, yeah. very interesting. I, I assume it's. I assume it has something to do with who owns the patents on those particular uh, vaccines and who was making the money. Right, NIH co-owns the patent with Moderna, but interestingly, Pfizer and Moderna used the same marketing firm, Weber Shandwick, and Weber Shandwick has an installed marketing unit within the CDC. Their workers are in the CDC vaccine office promoting Pfizer and Moderna, preferentially over J&J &J and Novavax. So Americans never really got a fair look at the choice of vaccines. No, and as an aside, I know that you know my my uh, my friend Bobby Kennedy, and I know that you are uh, very close with him now too. Is really he's been um, very vocal about these issues. He said we had Bobby on the show a couple times, and I asked him specifically about how he would manage. Um, really, the conflicts of interest with regard to our, you know, there are once storied medical journals and the intrusion of big pharma into our medical journals. And interestingly, he said that if he were elected president, he would haul the editors of the big journals in and tell them if he they didn't disarticulate their relationship with the pharmaceutical companies, that he would file a RICO case. He would file racketeering uh, charges, which I thought was brilliant. Just as an aside, I thought because the the conflicts of interest, you're talking about a marketing firm being embedded within the CDC, that is so rotten, that is so corrupt that I I, I, I find myself apoplectic. I, I just, I, it's hard to to say just uh, what a raw deal Americans have gotten as, as a result of all of this. You know, Rand uh, Paul, Rand Paul wrote a letter to Walensky and said, listen, you've got Pfizer and Moderna's marketing unit inside the CDC. They're emailing each other about, you know, uh, creating, you know, trying to curry favor to uh, to the CDC. And it turns out Walensky and their unit, they paid fifty three million dollars to Weber Shanrick to get that marketing. So that's how corrupt it is. Money is just flowing in this biopharmaceutical complex that we describe in my now banned book on Amazon. Yeah, unbelievable. The, well, the, the big topic I really want to talk with you about um, it, it is this issue, and Drew and I have argued about it quite a bit, this issue about myocarditis and putting to bed once and for all the idea that COVID has just as much a risk of causing myocarditis or pericarditis as the vaccine does. Uh, our friend, our mutual friend and colleague, Ryan Cole, we've discussed this with him, and he has stated unequivocally that you are able to stain, if you did the appropriate staining of the myocardium, you would be able to differentiate between uh, spike proteins in the myocardium and the heart muscle that are a result of the vaccine versus those that would be the result from having had the virus. But let's talk, let's go down that road. Talk about what we know and what the studies have shown with regard to risk of myocarditis from having had COVID versus the vaccines. Okay. 
let's just talk before the vaccine. So we have a period of time before the vaccine. So we cannot implicate the vaccines. It's, it's just what we know. It actually goes back to 1992. Ralph Barrick published in the American Journal of Cardiology, a journal that I was the senior associate editor of, so I know it well. He published in 1992 that if we flood the, a, a, an animal heart in a, um, uh, you know, in a in vivo model, with uh, beta coronavirus, we can cause some myocarditis. So with COVID, there was an a priori concern that COVID would cause myocarditis. So uh, we had screening programs for the NCA Big Ten, the US military, and the Israeli military. And the US Big Ten is most notable, published in JAMA by Daniels and colleagues. They screened thousands and thousands of athletes. In 2020, 30% of the Big Ten got COVID. So they went, they had uh, uh, biomarkers, troponin and others, EKG, imaging, cardiac MRI, and that huge screening program, they netted about 36 putative cases of possibly myocarditis. And there was no hospitalizations and deaths. It was completely inconsequential. Same thing with the US military and same thing with Israeli military. So they dropped it. So we know community outpatient COVID-19, uh, it's been well studied now, is not a significant cause of myocarditis. Tuvali and colleagues published in Israel an observational study showing in 2020, there was really no increase in myocarditis over the baseline. So where does this talking point come from? Even Fauci said this, that there's way more myocarditis from COVID than, than the vaccine. It comes from inpatient studies. So in 2020, in inpatient studies of COVID, about 30% of people in the ICU have an elevated troponin like they do with sepsis, with pneumococcal pneumonia and others. And that troponin elevation is triggering off an ICD code, which in big database studies yeah. is reading out as myocarditis. It's not adjudicated myocarditis. It's not confirmed by the Lake Louise criteria or anything else. And so it's a false claim that COVID itself causes significant myocarditis. Now enter in the vaccines and we have explosive numbers of cases, including you know, hospital, you know, many studies showing hospitalized and fatal cases of COVID vaccine myocarditis. Have you, so, did you so guys have terms, a chance just, to look at the, the circulation article that I circulated uh, amongst us? Did, there was, it's from July. Uh, it's a, it's a Hong Kong article. Did you guys have a chance to see it? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm you're looking incredulous. Yeah. You, you, Peter, you saw it and oh. it, it sort of yeah. took my breath away that it, it was, uh, showing essentially, I mean, just to summarize a, a good study, frankly, that about half of these young males with myocarditis, mild myocarditis had chronic a year later evidence of myocardial mm -hmm. injury and dysfunction, particularly in the right ventricle. Yeah, it, it's true. Actually, that paper from Taiwan, there was a paper um, uh, from Yale, uh, uh, Barmada showed this, that it's not clearing up uh, by MRIs by nine or 12 months. Now, it, I can tell you, small areas of late gadolinium enhancement can completely resolve. I've seen that in my clinical practice. It was shown in a paper long before COVID by Bruckman and colleagues from Germany that non-ischemic areas of late gadolinium enhancement can clearly repair. The heart can repair itself, less so with coronary artery disease and ischemia and infarction. But an important paper mm. by Yonker and colleagues from Massachusetts General Hospital, where they're hospitalizing kids with vaccine myocarditis, not with COVID, but with vaccine myocarditis, they found that the kids who have myocarditis have circulating spike protein in the blood 
and the library of antibodies is not neutralizing the spike protein, whereas the kids without myocarditis have spike protein, but the antibodies are appropriately neutralizing it. So it looks like why some get myocarditis and others has to do with a mismatch in the library of antibodies that's raised against the spike protein. I want to make sure I'm hearing. So, I'm sorry, it, Kelly, to keep interrupting here, but but the, are you saying that even though the gadolinium enhancement is still there a year out with stiff right ventricle, all that still has a high probability of resolving? Well, at a year, we start to worry that it's permanent. Uh, but we there was right. two papers by Jenna Schauer and colleagues in the journal Pediatrics with uh, early on with kids with vaccine myocarditis. And these areas were resolving. The big ones uh, were resolving partially. Small ones can completely resolve. Uh, you know, I've seen in my practice seven or eight percent left uh, left ventricle LGE resolve. But shower in some of these kids, you, you know. A, by the way, a big area of damage is considered fifteen percent of the left ventricle. Shower was mm -hmm. describing mm -hmm. cases where it's twenty-five percent of the ventricle damaged with the vaccine in the in the children she was uh, reporting in her papers. So I think a lot of this is the big areas are not going to completely resolve. Smaller ones will. Uh, by the way, myocarditis is treatable. The Japanese, as well as myself, were using prolonged corticosteroids over three months, prednisone, colchicine for a mm -hmm. full year. Japanese are using IVIG or plasmapheresis. I haven't, I haven't had to do that. Mm -hmm. Those who have early heart failure, we use uh, uh, drugs like Entresto and Carvedilol. Uh, so myocarditis is, is treatable. And it needs careful observation, and they cannot go on the playing field. Even before COVID, when there's myocarditis, we cannot let them play because the surge of adrenaline could trigger a cardiac arrest. The same surge of adrenaline, by the way, occurs about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So you hear about uh, kids with myocarditis dying in their sleep, like the paper by Gill and colleagues. Uh, but the point is, uh, you know, the, the, the leagues were so concerned about myocarditis in 2020, they all had screening programs. Then we enter in the vaccines right. and the FDA warns that they cause myocarditis by June of 2021 and none of the none of the athletic leagues even screen for it. Right. So so let me just clarify two two things here. Um, part of my job on this show is to put things in lay terms. So what you were saying about the th this myth, this and it is a myth that COVID has has high a risk of causing myocarditis as the vaccines. That myth was derived from the idea that these hospitalized patients were very ill in the ICU, had a blood test that would be elevated for anybody in the ICU with a serious infection or serious trauma, serious anything. And it was read out as myocarditis when they in fact didn't have myocarditis. And it is irrefutable at this point, the studies are clear that these cases of myocarditis are being caused by the vaccine, not by the virus. Um, the other thing that you just said that I think is, go ahead. Yeah, it's true. Say the the inpatient, uh, troponin elevation that kicks off an ICD code, uh, you know, those aren't adjudicated cases. So they're not bona fide cases of, of myocarditis. And, and so this was very sloppily reported. Even the American College of Cardiology has a position paper in the fall of 2022 saying, oh, the illness causes uh, more myocarditis than the vaccines. So therefore, we should give vaccines and cause more myocarditis. It doesn't make any sense. Cardiologists would never support giving something that causes heart damage under any circumstances. Right. And, the, and then the other thing, and the elephant in the room, I will point out, you know, you, you made the point that the kids, children who ended up getting myocarditis had a mismatch between the antibodies that they have and the actual spike protein on the virus. 
if, if case people haven't connected the dots, the things most likely to give you that mismatch is having gotten a vaccine for a previous strain. And then you, know, you get vaccinated for the original strain, for the Wuhan strain that they created. And then lo and behold, you get XBB. You're going to have the wrong antibodies. You are going to have that mismatch, people. That's how it happens. Okay, you vaccinate people and then they end up getting a different strain. So I think that also the Thai study, if I recall, there was a study in Thailand of young males, I think 13 to 19 year olds, and they had proven that I think it was about 300 kids. They had proven serologically that they had not had COVID. None of them had. They got the vaccine. And then I think 30% of them had EKG changes or evidence of cardiac injury following the vaccination. It was really a, um, I don't remember all the details of that study, but it was profound. You're, you're citing that, you know, remember the FDA told Pfizer and Moderna, you, they need to do prospective cohort studies where they measure everything at baseline, give the vaccine right. and measure everything again. Neither, neither company fulfilled that uh, obligation. It's one of the reasons why they're not fully licensed, but then neither one of the companies did. Mansugian uh, studied children aged 13 to 18 on the second shot of Pfizer only and did baseline blood biomarkers and imaging, including MRI, and then at follow-up, and about 30% had symptoms. However, the number that actually had met a definition of myocarditis using a multi-dimensional definition uh, in that study was 2.3%. And then separately, a paper by Buren and Lepesic in, in Basel, Switzerland, studied shot number three of Pfizer uh, in nurses, healthcare workers. And again, this turns out largely female. And the number there they got in terms of an elevation troponin and some other supportive data, the number they had uh, was 2.8%. So they're pretty close. So we think about 2.5% mm -hmm. of people do sustain some heart injury and less than half of that evokes any symptoms. So most people don't know right. that they're sustaining heart damage. What did you make, if anything, of at one point, the FAA changed the guidelines for the EKGs for pilots for the FAA exam. And I think it had to do with uh, loosening the, um, the restrictions on with regard to PR intervals, I think, on their EKGs. They, they made some change, some substantive changes. Were you aware of that, that they, de they changed the cardiac guidelines of the EKGs for pilots? And what, if anything, did you make of that? I looked at it carefully. You know, the PR interval got the most press, but it turns out they loosened dozens and dozens of cardiovascular criteria, but also dozens of neurologic criteria. So the entire set of criterion for fit, fitness of a pilot uh, loosened. And my read on this is that I think it's actually due to the aging of the pilot population. Now, it may be superimposed because, you know, there's more disease related to COVID or the vaccines, but I don't think we can pinpoint it. Uh, but but any any way you evaluate it, it is now from a health perspective easier to have a commercial pilot license. Right, and, and then the, the last big thing I had on my, that I wanted to pick your brain about because I simply it is don't have a good handle on. People ask me all the time about this issue of shedding. Um, I don't, I, and I really don't know what the what the studies show. I really don't know that we've been able to prove it. What what is your understanding of the the risk of spike of vaccine shedding or spike shedding uh, with COVID? Yeah, I interviewed Helene Benoon, uh, who's former Inserm scientist. Now she's a you know independently 
doing uh, review papers and scholarship in France, uh, a real expert on this. And you know, her belief is that there is bona fide shedding of spike protein almost certainly, but it's probably immaterial. You know, uh, data from the Framingham Heart Study, UT Houston, a big study, shows 97% of us have antibodies against the spike protein. So it, it's almost irrelevant. We're getting some spike rechallenge, you know, orally, mucosally. It's 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 not a big deal. The messenger RNA is a bigger deal. Now, two papers, one by Hannah and colleagues from uh, in JAMA, the other one recently in uh, from Japan in uh, Lancet, show that breast milk is carrying the messenger RNA. That's for mm -hmm. sure in freshly vaccinated mothers. A uh, paper by Castriuta and colleagues show uh, circulatory circulatory messenger RNA for 30 days in blood. And now a paper by Crossan and colleagues from Massachusetts General Hospital shows the um, uh, the messenger RNA stuck in the human heart associated with inflammation at 30 days, uh, you know, in these deaths that have occurred within 30 days of the shot. So it's very possible that messenger RNA could be shed in body fluids, uh, certainly breast milk or sweat, what have you, within, let's say, 30 days of a vaccine, maybe 90 days to, to keep it safe. Uh, but, but there's never been a bona fide case demonstrating that, demonstrating the transmission. There's never been a bona fide transfusion case of demonstrating that. And now uh, the Associated Press is reporting October 4th, 2023, only 1.3% of people are taking any more shots. So we're down to yeah. a tiny fraction to even study this now. For most people, the vaccines are long in the rearview mirror. Because I guess the question is, you know, if we, we know that you have the mRNA in breast milk, for example, and we can presume that you may have it in sweat or saliva or other bodily fluids, I guess the question is, you know, is there any indication that it can be absorbed that way? And the reason I make this segue is because we know now also very concerningly that they are injecting mRNA vaccines into the food source. You know, they're injecting, you know, beef and and poultry with mRNA vaccines. And so I guess the question becomes, is there a risk of us being able to absorb it through the GI tract? You know, can it be absorbed through the intestine or the stomach lining and those sorts of things? You know, what is the actual risk? Because this, I, I've said from the beginning of the pandemic that I believed that the goal was to make mRNA that word, a household word, to make people believe that this platform is tried and true and tested and nothing to be worried about. And therefore, we can just inject everything and everybody around us, you know, with mRNA to, to no, you know, concern. You know, what, what do we know about whether or not you can absorb this stuff? Well, I can tell you Zhang and colleagues in the preprint server, December 2022, demonstrated that a uh, RNA for a restricted part of the spike protein, the receptor binding domain, uh, that could be stabilized in a exosome, essentially a milk bubble. And once they created this, they fed milk to a mammalian model three times, you know, fed it through the GI tract, and they were able to successfully immunize that mammal. Uh, now we have a, a, a press release that one of the companies has made a nasally absorbed messenger RNA vaccine. So I think it's becoming clear that, that the nasopharynx and the GI tract will absorb and take up messenger RNA. Um, the USDA on their website has multiple projects dealing with messenger RNA in the food supply. 
Now, some right. of these are to try to immunize the animals against disease. And then in the plants, the goal of these projects is actually to immunize humans, trying to immunize humans against uh, diarrheal diseases or others through plants. Now, what's been absorbed? There's been one study demonstrating, I believe, watermelon juice. Uh, I think milk again will get it absorbed. They're going to find there's be different ways to get it absorbed. What's currently in the food supply? There's no messenger RNA that I'm aware of that's in the food supply right now. There are self-replicating RNAs, which are a little different. They replicate once and that's it. And that's in the uh, pork supply since 2017. And, you know, not all the farms use it, uh, but it is, you know, Merck's got a big sequavity program, for instance, and it's in, uh, it's in swine, not yet in beef or, or other products. Wow. All right. Well, I, I glanced, I glossed over, uh, not uh, purposely, your last statement, however, about the uh, decrease, significant decrease in vaccine uh, uptake or, or interest, you should say, that people just aren't doing. What is your sense of, um, about, you know, you and, and I and, and a few others have been uh, clamoring for these things to be removed entirely from the market? Uh, I, I'm thrilled that there's vaccine hesitancy as a result of everything we know, but that is not enough. They should be removed. We can't rely on the lay individual to, to know this information and stay away from them. Uh, what is your sense um, about whether or not these things will, in fact, be fully removed from the market? I don't think they're going to be removed. They are, uh, you know, they're presented by the Department of Defense and Health and Human Services. They are military countermeasures. The emergency has been dropped by the Biden administration in May of 2023. These aren't being dropped. Uh, this is what we describe in our book, this biopharmaceutical complex, the syndicate that's so powerful that they're going to continue these no matter what. You're right, they're announcing new messenger RNA vaccines. The U.S. government has made a massive investment in messenger RNA since 1985, paper by Lalani and colleagues summarized that. Um, you know, there's over 9,000 patents on messenger RNA, 9,000. Uh, the top wow. patent assignees are Sanofi, CureVac, uh, BioNTech, Moderna, and the U.S. government. So right. there's been a love affair with messenger RNA for the longest time. Yep. I don't think it's going away, uh, you know, but there's no signs that it's becoming any safer. Carrico and Weisman just won the Nobel Prize because of pseudo-urogenation actually trying to make it last longer. Well, that would have been fine to replace a normal human protein like, you know, insulin and type one diabetes or aflagalactosidase and fabrase, but it's not okay when you're producing a potentially dangerous path, you know, antigen like the spike protein. Yeah, and, and it really begs the question. The the emergency has is officially over. Even you know Joe Biden has announced it. So, so it really begs the question. There is not a single FDA approved vaccination for, and I use that term loosely, injection for COVID. Yet they are all available, and they keep cranking out new ones under emergency use authorization. How is that even? allowed what's the emergency we we all have acknowledged that the emergency is over how is it that they are getting away with continuing to push emergency use authorization non-fda approved injections it's a military mechanism it's a national security administration mechanism i think the whole fda part of this is just choreography i don't think an fda really has to approve or not approve an emergency use authorized 
product. I mean, this is the mechanism that's used to vaccinate the military for anthrax and smallpox and other illnesses. So it's when our government apparatus decides that this countermeasure is going to be stopped. That's when it's going to be stopped. I think the FDA has nothing to do with it. I think that's the reason why there's a blind eye turned towards safety. The products are not bought and sold. Uh, do you know that guy out in Utah who was giving fake vaccines and giving saline right. injections? You know what his charge was? Disposal of government property. That's what these vaccines are. These vaccines are government property. They're not even considered commercial biopharmaceuticals. Wow. Wow. Well, I am cognizant of the clock winding down here, Drew. Um, yes. Uh, it, it, yeah. You know, what What have I not covered here? Um, no, I think you've done a nice job. I, the, the only thing I would raise is something that came up on our, our, stream, or our, our chat stream and Rumble Rant. And I don't know if this is even meaningful, but it came up a couple of times, which was um, somebody mentioned that you might have had a conversation with Damar Hamlin. And they were asking what happened in that conversation. Is that true, A and B? Is that something you can share about? I never had a conversation with Damar Hamlin, but I did pair up with another cardiologist, both of us very concerned. We wrote the Bills organization, we wrote the Buffalo Evening News, telling them that, listen, you know, athletes who have a cardiac arrest, no matter what the cause, the standard of care is to have a, a, an implanted defibrillator. And our great concern mm. is that he would be at risk for a repeat arrest. So, you know, our, our words were mm. transmitted and uh, we'll see, but but following DeMar Hamlin's very important because he is the first athlete ever to have a full-blown cardiac arrest, required defibrillation, return to the field, you know, ostensibly without without a defibrillator. And, and, and the other notable case is Oscar Cabrera Adamas, the Dominican player who uh, takes a vaccine, gets myocarditis, has a cardiac arrest on the court, declares that it's myocarditis, cardiac arrest, tries to recover over two years, He's on a medical treadmill, no ICD, and he dies on the treadmill trying to come back. That's two years after his original case of myocarditis. That's the concern about Hamlin. Yeah, and we've got yeah, uh, and we've got uh, Bronnie Bronnie. We've got Bronnie James, Drew, who who you're supposed to believe, you know, um, you know, as well as I do, the amount of testing that these athletes go through before they are hired on by a uh, professional oh, yeah. team. They go through the ringer. So we're now supposed to believe that he had some previously undiagnosed, quote, congenital heart problem uh, that caused him to have a, uh, a cardiac arrest uh, in the middle of the of the court. Um, I think it's I think it's preposterous. I don't think it, it simply isn't plausible in my mind, um, that this could have been a congenital heart issue uh, that was, quote, overlooked in all of the testing that he had um, prior to I'd like to, being, to know what it was. You know. What it, What is the congenital? Does he have right yeah. ventricular atresia or something? I mean, what does he have, number one? Number two, for That's the other thing. That there's never a statement of what people have. With Damar Hamlin, no one came out and actually said what he has. Hamlin's the one who had to give himself the diagnosis of commodio cortis. With Bronnie mm -hmm. James... Um, you know, he probably had EKGs and echoes, I'd imagine. Uh, everything looked fine. He didn't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's really what they're screening for. And then he has this near cardiac arrest. By the way, I don't think he had a full cardiac arrest because he was in and out of the ICU in hours. He was out of the hospital the next day. So I think he had a near miss and uh, may have had, maybe had some type of an arrhythmia. But uh, uh, he probably did undergo an MRI. They probably found a patent foramen ovale or atrial septal defect and said, aha, well, here's some previously undetected congenital heart disease. Now they have a storyline 
in order to kind of take it away. But they don't mention, did he take the vaccine or not? Bronnie James went to a high school that strictly enforced all vaccines and everybody. Right. Then he goes to USC, which strictly forces. And his dad says that it's the best thing to yeah. do to take the vaccine for him and his family in September of 2021. So almost certainly Bronnie took the vaccine. The case to watch is actually uh, Bronnie's teammate, um, uh, 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 Vince Uichuchu. He has a full-blown cardiac arrest. Again, USC, a vaccinating university, presumably took the vaccine. He gets an ICD, presumably an implantable ICD, and now he's back playing. Uh, so the, he's going to be an interesting, interesting case to watch. Wow. And wow. for people, that uh, these are these are little quarter-sized devices that go under the skin here in the clavicle area, and they prevent, they treat any significant cardiac events after that from then on. They can also function as pacemakers. But all right, Dr. McCullough, we've been very kind with your time. We've kept you beyond uh, where we should have. Thank you. Hopefully we'll talk to you again Thank soon. You. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. And uh, Kelly, I'm going to chat with you for a few minutes here um, okay. after we let Dr. McCullough go. But Susan is... Uh, waving at me, doing literally doing like uh, jumping jacks. So something is up. Okay, all right. So she's telling us we have to wrap up too. So uh, there's okay. other other obligations afoot. But I, I want to chat with you for just a minute. Did did you did you read that circulation article that I sent around? I, I, I really I caught did. my I attention. Just, I, I, I was I, I scanned it because I was getting inundated with things to read before the show. Uh, our, Got it. Our, uh, take, know, take a Emily look. Take, take a look and see if you if. But but see if you weren't as uh, blown away as I was. I mean, it's the first time where it's like, wow, this is very, very concerning. And, and I'm, you know, I've been concerned right. about the myocarditis, but this really kind of took my breath away. And, and why it is not being discussed more widely is mysterious and almost makes me believe it must be over the target. It must be because it is, well, it is uh, problematic. Yes, and and that's what I've been reporting on. And that's why I specifically, of all the things we want, I wanted to talk with Dr. McCullough about today, was I want to put to bed this this issue, this myth that you know, yes, we're seeing myocarditis, but a bunch of it's from COVID. That simply isn't the case. This is a significant yeah. risk from these vaccines. The the uh, big the pharmaceutical companies know it. The FDA knows it. The CDC knows it. Uh, it is out there. This is not a virus-related thing. It is from the vaccine, and I do think it's very problematic. And I, you know, there are nuances of what Dr. McCullough said that I don't want people uh, to have missed, like the yeah. fact that there's a yeah. lot of myocarditis. The ones we know, Drew, are the ones that are symptomatic. When somebody has chest pain or shortness of breath or all of a sudden develops yep. exercise intolerance, then they get worked up. But it's the leagues of people who have myocarditis and don't know it because they don't have symptoms. Mm -hmm. And for many of those people, mm -hmm. the first sign that they have myocarditis is going to be a sudden cardiac arrest. The first yeah, sign that, that they have myocarditis sure. is going to be being found dead in bed by their parents in the morning. Okay. This is, yes. that's the concern. So the question is how many, you know, every, as far as I'm concerned, if you are a university that has mandated this vaccine, so you're mandating a vaccination for people who are in that prime risk category, they should be providing absolutely free screening 
for every single student that they have, the tens of thousands of them walking around their campus that they forced to get vaccinated, they should be forced to pay for the cardiac MRI for those guys, for every one of those students, for every employee who was forced against his or her will to take one, the employer should be obligated to pay for a full cardiac workup, including the very costly cardiac MRI to look for signs of myocarditis. I, I agree with everything you said, and not only that, but it, it isn't just the sudden death that now this circulation article implies. The circulation article implies that there will be lifelong progression of myocardial yeah. dysfunction, difficulty with activities, yeah. eventually cardiobiopathies, needing cardiac transplantation mm -hmm. if you're a young adult when developing these things. I mean, that's what this article implies, doesn't prove, implies mm -hmm. it. And that is gravely concerned to me. And I just want to make one last point, then we got to wrap this up, which is that there is a completely different diathesis of a physician giving something to a patient who is healthy and making them sick, as opposed to somebody who is sick and gets a medical complication. Let's say a myocarditis is common in the in the uh, COVID COVID uh, cases. It still is a very different ethical consideration. What it means when you have done harm, when your mandate is do no harm. And by the way, no. again, towards the push to get vaccinated, we have treatments. We have lots of treatments available now. So the push itself starts to make no sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I will leave you with this thought. One of the great tragedies uh, in my lifetime in medicine is that they no longer even teach, Drew, the four pillars of medical ethics. Your average physician doesn't even know what they are. Uh, autonomy, mm -hmm. beneficence, non-malevolence, and justice. Everyone quotes first do no harm, and that is closely aligned with the uh, non-malevolence. Uh, but their beneficence, meaning you are required as a physician to be assured that what you are suggesting will benefit the patient, won't just not harm them, but will benefit them. In medical ethics, there is no such thing as taking one for the team. There is no such thing as being forced to take something against you know, your will or what's best for you because it's better for the rest of humanity. That is not a core pillar of medical ethics. And we have got to get back to that. You know, autonomy starts with autonomy, which means that the, fundamentally the patient is always the person who is the arbiter of what is best for him or her. And it, it should have that ability to turn something down. But beneficence, the idea that you are obligated to be assured that you are doing something that is beneficial to the patient is different from non-malevolence, which is do no harm. You better be darn sure it actually helps, not hurts. Uh, and these are things that we have really taken leave of. And I find it uh, tragic that your average physician doesn't even know these things. And we had better, you can't follow the four pillars of medical ethics if you don't even know what the hell they are. I want to leave it at that. Uh, two, two final notes. I'm going to be uh, moderating a panel with RFK Jr. in San Jose on October 28th. We'll put up some information about that. Uh, and uh, yes, I saw somebody just tweet there that tonight Teen Mom reunion is on the air. We'd appreciate your support on that as well. Kelly, thank you as all. Comedy festival. Comedy festival on November 6th. Susan is yelling at me from the side. Kelly, we're still with you tomorrow with John Stockton. I'll see you then. Yes, at noon, earlier time. So everybody, noon, noon. tomorrow, Pacific, noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time with uh, John Stockton. Looking forward to it.
There you go. And these are upcoming shows. Uh, Scott Adams next Tuesday. Michael Turner but Dr. Victory back next week. And Carrie Leake on the 19th. We'll see you tomorrow, noontime Pacific, 3 o'clock Eastern. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 